Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Vengeance is mine and and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. The day of their calamity is at hand. And their doom comes swiftly. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not in the text. I'm just citing other things. Where is he? I'm in Deuteronomy, Romans, and Hebrews. (laughs) How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Uh, Revelation 18 and 19 um, shows us the Lord carrying out that promise. Vengeance is mine. So this, what we see before us, is the Lord's revenge. This is his retaliation. This is his punishment. This is Jesus settling the ultimate score. That which he is most certainly, without a second thought or any retraction, going to carry out. So here, the the dazzling and prosperous Babylon will become a desolate wasteland. That's what's being portrayed for us here. Um, It'll be home to nothing, as we read last week, home to nothing but demons and vultures. That's the picture. It's apocalyptic language. These are pictures that that define or describe something great, and it's ultimate desolation. So the flames that consume Babylon and cause her burning, chapter 18, verse 9, will soon consume them. They also will be consumed 
in unending flames. Um, here they mourn her destruction, and as a result, they stand terrified. They stand in awe uh, of the one to whom they thought no destruction could ever come, the one uh, who, who declared, I will never be brought down, I will never be made desolate, I will never be made a widow. And that, by the way, the smoke of her burning, chapter 18, verse 9, is the same language used for the destruction of Sodom. But here, it's not in the context of male, male sexual, the male sexual sin of sodomy. This is in the context of the idolatry of materialism. So as John describes her destruction and the, the falling of, upon Babylon, we're not only shown here a vivid detail of that destruction, but what we see through it are two very different reactions to the devastation. We touched on it last week. The first reaction is one of weeping and wailing of all who were in bed with her. God's judgment will bring those who remain under Babylon's spell a cry of despair. Those who have engaged in adultery With Babylon, here they find themselves bereft of the harlot, wailing her loss. So the lovers weep as their mistress is destroyed, crying out with this exclamation of grief, Alas, alas, back in chapter 18, verse 10, The great city, you mighty city Babylon, in a single hour your judgment has come. In other words, swiftly. God's judgment comes swiftly. In verse 16 and 17, alas, alas, chapter 18. uh, For great, the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, for in a single hour all her wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, they threw dust on on their heads, they wept aloud and mourned, crying, alas, alas. And then with one great, swift gesture, that is something like a great millstone, this mighty angel picks up something like a great millstone, throwing it into the sea, and Babylon becomes a parable. Suddenly gone forever. No longer, the scripture goes on to say, will there be any laughter within her walls, no music within the great city. No longer will there be sounds of commerce in her streets. The lights that used to light her up, that used to illumine her, are now extinguished uh, forever. Only retribution is visible now. The day of reckoning has come. The streets of the harlot, the harlot city, have run with the blood of the prophets and of the saints for thousands of years. Never again will voices or sounds be heard within her walls, only silence. She's destroyed. Her fate is sealed. Her doom is sure, as well as all who are involved with her. So their weeping and their wailing here is an expression that conveys violent emotion. I touched on that last week. Like a violent cry, uncontrollable Wailing and bellowing. After all, as God causes Babylon to burn, Babylon's traitors won't be far behind. 
That's the first reaction. The second reaction is one of rejoicing and celebration. John hears a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven who are responding to the invitation of chapter 18, verse 20. You remember that invitation? Rejoice over her. O heaven, and you saints, and apostles, and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Rejoice. Over who? Over who? Burning, smoldering Babylon, whose smoke goes up forever. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Okay, after this, after this what? After the prior vision of Babylon's violent final ruin. Her downfall and ruin recorded in verses 20 to 24 in chapter 18. In response to that devastation, they cry out, they shout, hallelujah. After this I heard, verse 1, would seem to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah. Look at that verse 3. They cry out. Now, that is a sound, beloved. When it enters the ears of many evangelical professing Christians of our day, it causes them great discomfort. So much so that they see this reaction to be uh, overly vindictive, nasty, malicious, cruel. Okay? But I must say, if this, if this scene makes any professing Christian uncomfortable, that is, hearing the people of God in their destiny rejoicing over the fact that justice has been done, if that makes the, unbeliever, the believer, the professing believer, uncomfortable, irritated, or vexed, then they do not have a biblical mind. Period. So in their ignorance, or better yet probably, in their arrogance, it, uh, they're admitting the fact that they are too skewed in their thinking to know exactly how offended God is with the evil of mankind. And worst case scenario, for the professing believer who gets all vexed, over of this type of rejoicing, for a professing Christian to, 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 to be uncomfortable over the rejoicing of smoldering Babylon is perhaps the fact that they themselves are complicit and in alliance with Babylon. Perhaps. So the true people of God are those that, that look and say, 
that at the heart of our rejoicing here as we, as we see the text, when it's all said and done, is the Lord of glory who will make all wrongs right. That, that our Lord is coming to exact justice. And he will do so, as David proclaimed, until he's placed all his enemies under his feet as his footstool. So listen to Psalm 104, verse 35. Sometimes I can't remember if I put these up or not. Let listeners be, let sinners, sorry, let sinners be consumed from the earth. And let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. You know what that is? That's worship. With a capital W. Over what? God's judgment over impenitent sinners. So let's ask, what is worship? Okay, in Revelation 19, worship is, is simply what happens when you find something that you value, right? The minute the human heart locks onto something that it values, something that is precious to it, worship happens. And worship is something that we see throughout the revelation of Jesus Christ. More than any other book in the Bible, other than the Psalms, you see praise and worship. We read over and over again the praise of holy angels and the praise of holy saints. More than anywhere else other than the Psalms. And the worship that we read about is preoccupied with God. Amen? It's preoccupied with God. It's a worship, it's worship that is ascribed to Him. It's about Him, who He is, what He does, and that which He has. Done. Amen? And it's corporate. Corporate worship. So there's no focus on the worshiper. Amen? It's all on the one to whom all worship is due. You know, people come here, they'll visit here, and, you know, they'll they'll come and they'll say, it's too traditional, too many hymns. And there's those who come who say, it's too contemporary. I don't like guitars. Okay, look. Even though the focus and the substance of our worship is God glorified through his son, Jesus Christ, it's still not enough because now the focus is turned on the worshiper and how I feel fulfilled. Right? The worship we see in Revelation, it's loud. It's not individualistic, but it's always in the corporate setting. It's passionate. As I said, loud instruments are used. (laughs) Angels fall prostrate. And worship in the Revelation is fashioned by three themes. Three themes. There's worship over God's creation, His work of creation. Number one, his provision of salvation. Number two, and number three, his wrath poured out. Those are the three themes of worship in the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But only two of the three in our day, for most Christians, I believe, are acceptable forms of worship. Yes, we'll worship him over his creation. Yes, we'll worship him over his salvation. But over his judgment? Over his wrath? And those are usually people whose theology is tainted and shaped by their politically, their politically correct cultural orthodoxy. Far from biblical. But chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, is the triumphal finale. What we see here is the triumphal finale of a funeral song that began in chapter 18. All of which is the basis for praise. Praising Jesus for the execution of his promised vengeance. That's what it is. In John 5, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. For he, verse 2, has avenged on her, the great prostitute, the blood of his saints. Vengeance is mine. Now, next question, who is it that's crying out here with loud voices of praise? Well, if we look, we see that this is the same multitude described back in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. A great multitude no one could number. Meaning that the number of God's elect is very large. It's very large from throughout the world, from throughout time. In verses 1 through 3, the scene here of worshipers is made up of redeemed saints. Now, some say these are angelic hosts. But angels don't experience salvation, right? They do not experience salvation. Only fallen, redeemed human beings, the elect of God, experience salvation. And verse 7 says, salvation belongs to our God. The same line is sung in chapter 7, verse 10, from those who come from all the nations of the world. So these are those, beloved, who have left the tribulation, the tribulation of this world, and they've entered into their heavenly home. Okay? The great tribulation is the entire time between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may say, wait a minute, Tiger. I thought the kingdom was the time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. And you're right. It's both. John 1, 9, how does he open up the whole letter? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom with patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. For preaching Christ crucified, I've been exiled. I'm your brother in the kingdom, suffering as your brother in the tribulation. Amen? That's part of the tension of the already and the not yet. So this multitude either died trusting in Christ 
or they were martyred for their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, refusing to worship the beast and its image. And here they are. These are the same people who back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, called out with a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge what? Our blood. Now, here now, at the far end of their suffering on earth, the time has come to celebrate. Celebration. God has judged the earth and has avenged them. Their response, what is it? Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is what it is. Hallelujah. So the repeated peals of thunderous, loud, exuberant praise is the result of having looked in the face of something overwhelmingly wondrous, and that is, namely, the acts of God throughout history. The first thing that's caused for worship is that we have a God who is our conquering king. He's just and true. The second word of adoration out of the mouths of the people in heaven is God's salvation. Under all that praise, under all that praise in the heavenly realm, is there rejoicing over a fallen Babylon. And there, as she receives the judgment of God, the people of God in a chorus sing the joy that they experience as they see this, as they watch her fall. In context to all of that, we read four hallelujahs. Verse 1. Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. Now, by the way, these aren't frivolous, subjective shouts of hallelujah that are detached from objective content. Like Christians today, they're just, how you doing today? Hallelujah, brother. Great. Right? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But this is a Hebrew exclamation. This is an actual command. Hallelujah. That's a command to praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, command. Praise the Lord. So the idea, praise the Lord, all of you, is a corporate congregational setting. It's before our eyes. And for what? For God's salvation, for his power, for his glory, and his judgments that are true and just. His justice. His faithfulness and his righteous judgment. That is the subject about which God is being worshipped. So question. Why do so many Christians in our day have difficulty rejoicing over God's just punishment. Why do do so many Christians not want to hear about or straight up refuse to talk about the just judgment of God? 
Simple answer. Because their preoccupation with God's just punishment is entirely wrapped up in the suffering that it inflicts. They get caught up in that rather than the holy character of God and the just retribution that the holy character of God represents. So they got their eyes in the wrong place. So that is why we as God's people are commanded to rejoice, to worship in that part, this particular part of God's glory, the glory being displayed by way of judgment. And the judgment poured out upon God's enemies reveals God's glory in a way, friends, that nothing else can. Amen? Now look, it's not as though we stand back and rejoice over the destruction of the evil. Amen? We do not do that. We don't stand and point and laugh. When an unbeliever dies, I grieve. I'm not rubbing my hands together going, oh, they're burning in hell now. Right? No, that's not, that's not the point. This is a matter of rejoicing in God whose perfectly just retribution is equally meted out. That he's perfectly just. This is what we see. So in context to God's judgment, we ought never to apologize for it, beloved. Never should we apologize for his judgment. Never should we be embarrassed by it. That's the point for our application. Ever. In verse 4, notice, all this praise is going on. And then in verse 4, the heavenly courts join in celebration. So the heavenly courts join in the celebration. Notice, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried out, what? Amen, first. Amen. Hallelujah. So they're representative of the whole entire angelic host. So you've got the representatives of redeemed humanity rejoicing and the representatives of angelic hosts falling before God saying two things. To all the praise going on, they say, Amen, so be it. Amen, so be it which is to affirm, Lord, Almighty God, justice has been done upon your enemies. Hallelujah. This is reminiscent of Psalm 106, verse 48. Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, let the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Okay? Recounting, Israel praising Yahweh for delivering them from their enemies who oppressed them. Which is here now on a grand scale the case with the destruction of Babylon the Great. So the elders and the living creatures not only shout Alleluia along with the redeemed saints, they say once again, Amen. So be it. Right? Never apologize for the just judgment of God. Ever. 
Nobody irritates me more than people who are afraid and embarrassed. They're not quibbling up there. They're not shy about his judgment. They're not ashamed of his judgment. They're simply saying, it is done. So be it, amen. Woohoo! He said for a long time, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And here it is, verse 5. Now this is interesting, notice this. Okay, from the throne there came a voice. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Notice the command. A voice comes out, praise our God. So who's the command given to here? I mean, isn't this exactly what they're doing up there? Yeah, they're praising God. All those in heaven. Okay, but think about this. People in heaven don't need the command to praise God. Amen? We're the ones, the church militant, we're the ones, the church on earth, that need the command to praise our God. We're the ones that need exhortation to praise God in every context, including the judgment of God. So the voice from the throne is addressing the church that's still on earth. He's not talking to them. That's what they're doing. They're praising God. They're rejoicing. All his servants praise the Lord. Those without status, true believers, small and great who fear him. Praise our God. We, we need to remember to praise our God. Amen? We need to remember to praise him, to serve him, to fear him. All God's people, great and small. Until our faith, like theirs, becomes sight. Their faith has become sight. We must remember and be reminded to worship our God as we live and walk by faith. Because then, we'll be perf- being glorified is to be perfectly sanctified. You have perfectly sanctified lips, perfectly sanctified minds and hearts and eyes and all the little views that we hold to here. Right or wrong, the wrong ones will be all straightened out then. Amen? Liberal views will be straightened out. Selfish style preferences, straightened out. We're not there that we're not there yet, amen. So we are being reminded from some voice in heaven that comes from the throne. Rejoice, not to those who are already rejoicing with perfect sanctified lips, but we who are on earth. So here now, in addition to this rejoicing over God's perfectly just punishment, is that the judgment of his enemies now introduces God's people to the ultimate expression of eternal life. Described in verses 5 through 10. Until the final just punishment of God is unleashed and finalized, it is only then that God's people will experience the full expression of the salvation that has been earned for us. And it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Two things are are the cause here for this intensified 
these intensified uh, voices of praise. Number one, the Lord Almighty reigns. Number two, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice first, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Better rendered, actually, he has begun to reign. Wait a minute, tiger. Don't you always say, you know, the Great Commission, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth, be all, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Doesn't he reign now? Yes. Just an important grammatical point. This is not a present tense. This is what... Uh, linguists refer to as an ingressive aorist, which, is, which expresses this. The beginning of an action or the entrance into a particular state of being. Okay, now follow me. This does not mean that God has not ruled over, to, over all prior to this point. We would agree with that, right? Of course he has. Of course he did. This is not merely to affirm the eternal truth of God's sovereignty. This is announcing the consummation of his rule. With the subjection of what? All his enemies and rivals under his feet. We see in verse 6, the culmination, the consummation, of his reign in unveiled glory. So the point is that God has begun to reign over all because Babylon and all God's enemies have finally been destroyed. You get the picture, beloved? So until this moment here that we see before us, God has ruled... Of course he has, according to his long-suffering mercies. Allowing evil to run its course, even allowing the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and the harlot to persecute his people. He rules through it all and above it all, amen? But now has begun to reign with all of those enemies destroyed. That is what prepares the supper of the Lamb. They are no more. God's wrath, complete. Beautiful picture, isn't it? So uh, there's another reason now as we move on uh, that there's so much jubilation. It's loud. It's rowdy. If you really look at this, this is a rowdy activity. Without any strife, full joy, complete joy, perfectly sanctified joy, glorified joy. So God, having dealt with his enemies, his people now begin to prepare for the marriage supper has come. As one writer so aptly puts it, with the consummation of the kingdom comes the wedding feast. So not only notice has the bride made herself ready, But fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, this, of course, is not to imply uh, meritorious works that bring about salvation. It's not earned. Amen? The bride's given the garment. 
She's made herself ready for this wedding feast, having been faithful and loyal to her groom, the Lord Jesus. Also translated that, that, that um, the righteous deeds have been accomplished for her. I think Beal. Doesn't Beal interpret it like that? Something like that. They've resisted the seductive ways of the harlot. So unconditional grace provides the robes. Her, her deeds, one way to look at it, her deeds are the evidence of her sanctification. They belong to him. Listen to Isaiah 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This, of course, appoints to the deity of Jesus Christ. Remember in Matthew 22 and in Luke 14, Jesus told a parable about a great wedding feast. A great king invites a number of guests, numerous guests, to the wedding of his son, and they decline because they're just too busy. Making money. Doing business. And here in John's vision, the people who refuse to come to the wedding are those who would rather be in bed with the harlot serving the beast. Don't forget the warning of chapter 18, verse 4. Come out from among her, my people. Having been invited to the feast. And they don't come out. So refusing the warning to flee from her bed. Why? They refuse because they're too involved in her idolatry. Now in Jesus' parable, the king's judgment falls on all those who reject the gracious invitation. Okay, that's the picture. Jesus then talks about the wedding hall being filled. The day has come. And a man tries to crash the wedding. And he comes in without proper attire. He attempts to crash the wedding feast. Jesus said, Matthew twenty two eleven. But when the king came in to look at the guests... He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot. Cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. John sees here the blessing of receiving an invitation from God himself to attend the wedding of his son as a bride. And then with the destruction of the harlot comes the presentation of the bride. Right here. So John sees all this. 
And he instinctively responds. And he slips into an idolatrous position. Okay, John, who's receiving this vision. As I fell at the angel's feet to worship him, he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You say, people say they believe in God, but not his son. Or they believe that his son may be a way for them, but not for everyone. It's not that strict. It's not that narrow. Look. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's the word. Now, John is rebuked. And as we go back to chapter 17, verse 6, he was rebuked there as well. Remember, as kings of the earth were fawning over the harlot, the great world system, they were fawning over her, John looked and marveled. He also marveled, and the angel rebuked him, and he said, don't do that. Basically, what I think he's saying is, she is not worthy of your adoration and awe. Okay, to jump ahead, just a couple minutes. Here's the great supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about Jewish marriage customs, I've taught about this a lot in the past, it included uh, many traditions, customs within a Jewish marriage. John's readers, no doubt, would have understood the process because to begin with, there's a betrothal, amen? There's a betrothal where the bride and groom really are legally husband and wife, but they're not together yet. Joseph was betrothed to Mary when he thought she was pregnant by another man, sought to divorce her. They hadn't consummated the marriage yet. But they were betrothed to one another. And then all the details have to be worked out from the time of betrothal. There's the bride price. A dowry has to be paid. And then there's this great procession you know, to the bride's uh, father. The bride prepares herself, she she adorns herself, the groom comes in his best clothing, accompanied by this great procession of friends, and he's in a marriage carriage, if you will. You can read uh, the Song of Solomon. The marriage carriage takes her to her home, picks her up, they go back to his home, there's this great procession, they consummate the marriage, there's a wedding feast, there's a marriage supper, and all these festivities last upward of like seven days. Okay, that's the picture of a Jewish marriage, it's a snapshot. Okay, now to close, um, I want to read the words of uh, William Hendrickson, speaking of Christ, our groom, the church, his bride, And he says this, and I quote, In Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. 
Throughout the entire Old Testament economy, the wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood. The betrothal took place, the price, the dowry was paid on Calvary. And now, after an interval, the bridegroom returns and has come the marriage of the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? That's the picture. And the church yearns for this moment, says Hendrickson. The church on earth as well as the church in heaven. The church militant and the church victorious await this glorious feast. Amen? So the rejoicing over God's judgment over his enemies ushers in the ultimate final judgment, ushers in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Never ever be ashamed of the judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just be rejoicing along with that, that his judgment has passed over you as he bore the wrath himself. Amen? Amen.